Welcome to Great Ideas, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and today, American foreign policy toward Europe. For most of the 20th century, that sentence, that idea, was perhaps the most important in American government and politics. It defined the course of two world wars and the Cold War. Our trading relationships with European countries drove much of our economy. It certainly would have been a subject that made radio listeners and podcast listeners, if there had been any, sit up and pay attention. But in recent decades, there's been a steady decline in the importance that American and world leaders have placed on our relationship with Europe. The rise of Asian economies has rebalanced our economic focus, while the evolution of security threats has turned our eye to other areas of the world. President Biden's first overseas trip to Europe has brought our focus back to these relationships and the question of what significance they will continue to have in the 21st century. Our guest today suggests that we do need a renewed focus on how we work with European countries individually and collectively if we want to solve this century's greatest challenges. Max Bergman is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, where he focuses on Europe, Russia, and the U.S. security cooperative relationship. From 2011 to 2017, he served in the U.S. Department of State, including as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff. Max, welcome to Great Ideas. Matt, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. And it's really a pleasure. I, I'm going to give you credit for a great ideas first. It shows how much our focus has turned inward as a country that on a show devoted to ideas, to policy ideas, you are the first guest we've had on this show who's focused on foreign policy at all. <laughs> and our inaugural topic in the foreign policy realm is Europe. So let me start out with kind of a challenging question. The world's biggest military is in China. The second biggest economy, also China. The biggest population is in India. The country that attacked us most recently is Russia through their cyber warfare units. We remain in a state of war in Afghanistan and the most notable violent attack on our country emanated from the Middle East. Our biggest trading partners are Canada and Mexico. You can see where I'm going with this. Why should Americans care about our strategic military and economic relationship with Europe. Why should we pay attention? Well, when you put it that way, maybe you're, make, you're causing me to reconsider. No, the reason why Europe is undergoing actually a massive transformation and it's, it's ongoing and has been since, since World War II. And that's something called the European Project. It's Europe is integrating. It is forming, it has formed a union and that union is in the process of becoming ever closer. And oftentimes we sort of take for granted sort of European weakness over the last two decades, the United States has sort of dismissed Europe as sort of seen it as, as relevant as you mentioned. But you know, the, the economy of the European Union is the same size as the United States. It's the same size as China. There's 450 million people in Europe. It's a, it's a popular, in the European Union, it's population larger than the United States. And cumulatively, the European Union, all its member states collectively spend as much on defense as Russia and, and China approximately. So, you know, they have the economic wherewithal to be actually considered one of, one of the world's great powers. And while we sort of, well, the European Union clearly isn't that yet, we're starting to see flickers. We're starting to see moments where, you know, when the EU starts regulating digital companies, it's actually setting a standard that worldwide has to sort of be taken into account. 
And so because of its market size. And so all the focus on China, we sort of dismiss that there's this other emerging colossus that is quite stable, that is democratic, that is capitalist and free market oriented, and and that is slowly but surely emerging as, I think, a, a real player on, on, on the world scene. So that, I think, is fundamentally why we, we should think about Europe in the 21st century. But there's, of course, another reason, which is that, you know, let's say this good story, the good story that I just articulated, turns into a bad story. And, you know, after Brexit in 2016, where the UK voted to leave the European Union, there have been real fears that Europe, that the EU would disintegrate, it would fall apart. The rise of populism along the same lines that we saw here in the United States was very sort of anti-EU. And the EU faced all these crises, an economic crisis over the euro in the beginning of, of the 2010s, then a migration crisis, and then Brexit. And, and so, if, but if Europe falls apart, if Europe disintegrates, and that's just sort of what Russia and China are kind of after to sort of divide the Europe, then suddenly Europe could become a real problem, a security challenge once again, a real headache, not a reliable partner. So I think that's the sort of two futures, the two paths that we sort of face. And we know what the Europe disintegrating looks like, it's bad. Uh, we don't really know what Europe uniting and being a strong actor looks like because, you know, that's only really happened in European history just a handful of times, you know, Hitler united Europe, so did Napoleon, then we go back to, to the Holy Roman Empire, but not really, and then maybe Rome. So it's it's not a it's really hard to do, and the European Union is is achieving that. We don't really know what direction that will where you know how that will impact the kind of global balance going forward. Mm. Well, it sounds like first of all, there's been a tremendous amount of ferment and change within Europe, and of course within the process, the European project, as, as you say, of trying to achieve greater integration and, and unification. And of course, there's also been an evolution in how we as a country, and I mean, in the US, deal with those relationships with those individual countries and with the collective body. This is obviously a complex topic, but could you maybe just bring us up to speed in a nutshell with how that evolution has taken place since, I mean, I think we remember sort of the Cold War vision. We've seen it in movies. Some of us remember it, you know, and, and how important Europe was in a military context, how important it was in an economic context. Context. How, how has the organization of Europe and our relationship with European countries evolved in recent decades? Right. So it's a great question. I, I mean, I think the place to start is after World War II, because you had this continent that was, you know, I think we sort of can't quite, you know, really imagine. It's hard to imagine how utterly destroyed. And, and so the United States, through its occupation of, of particularly Western Europe, rebuilt Europe in its image, the Americanization of, of West Germany. We, we spent a ton of money through the Marshall Plan, not only rebuilding economies, but also rebuilding militaries through our military assistance. But it was, we, we had the vision, and this is really, you know, a U.S. vision. Well, it was U.S. support for a French vision, but the Americans had the, the wherewithal to really pursue this, this notion that we wanted Europe to start acting more as one. We wanted to start integrating Europe. But the problem we saw at the, after the Cold War or after World War II was European nationalism, that the nation states of Europe being sort of their own, own entities, the lack of economic integration. And so we pushed for integration. We supported the European project. It's sort of a French idea that had strong American backing. 
And we sort of forced Europe to start doing this. And so what happened is it started off as an economic project, initially a coal and steel community, and where effectively you're gonna integrate the French, French coal and steel industry with the German industry, the industries that are about making war. And then, but once you do that, you're like, well, why don't we do the energy sector? Why don't we do the, the, the you know, tech sector or, or integrate roads? And so Europe began, the European project began as an economic project. And so that was sort of on one track during the Cold War. And we sort of, US sort of set it and then we didn't pay much, too much attention to it, but Europeans gradually became more and more important. And then there was the military side and that's where NATO comes in, where we, worked with the Europe, states of Europe to create a military alliance. It was actually you know, really pushed by Western Europe. And this was of course about the Soviet Union. You know, up until the, the, the construction of the Berlin Wall in the 1960s, you know, the focus of the Cold War was on Europe. And we were all you know, incredibly nervous about the potential for the Soviets to pour into Western Europe. Our, our force presence was very high. And so defending Western Europe, preventing sort of a World War III, deterring World War III from occurring was front and center. And at the, you know, when the, the Berlin Wall collapsed, when the Cold War ended, the European Union realized they had this really significant economic project and they needed to transform it into a political project. And that's when in 1993, the European community, and a community is, you know, sort of a loose affiliation, decided to form a union. And so in 1993, the EU forms a union, it then starts to expand, and expands, it includes Nordic states, but then it indicates that it's going to expand eastward as well. And at the same time, NATO, which is, you know, military alliance separate from it, decides it's going to expand, that we're expanding as well. And so these two entities that are interrelated, but, but different, because of course the United States is in NATO, begin you know, expanding eastward. And where we are today is a Europe that is basically united both in NATO with NATO with 30 members and then the European Union with 27 members. Now they have roughly the same membership, but what, what has happened then is that the your process of creating a political union is, is, you know, I think in the United States, we've sort of, after 9-11, we really turned our gaze away from Europe, as you mentioned in your intro. And so we sort of view Europe as this really kind of static and stagnant, you know, aging population, not much is happening. But Europe has really transformed over the last 25 years, I would argue, where in 1993, you effectively made all members of the, all the citizens that live within the European Union dual citizens that you're both a citizen of Spain, but you're also an EU citizen. Mm. And so a young, a, a new generation, if you're 28 or 27, you have, you know, you were born in the EU. Well, you, your whole life, you've been an EU citizen. And so creating that citizen has, has really mattered. And Europeans increasingly think of themselves as Europeans and Brussels, the, the headquarters, essentially the where the federal government, which is very weak compared to the, you know, what we have in Washington, has gotten stronger. And so Europe, I would argue, is sort of processed not dissimilar to what we saw in America in the 19th century, where in the 19th century, you know, federal government was really weak. Washington was this like backward town. You know, the states had a lot of independence and autonomy. And gradually we had a federalization in the United States. And that led to the U.S. becoming a stronger federal entity and becoming a more of a global power. So that's kind of where we are today. I sort of went on a tangent there, but I think when it comes to interacting with the member states of the EU, this is where it gets really complicated, right? Certain policy issues are really dealt with by the EU. Certain ones are dealt with by the member states. So foreign policy and defense, which is always America's focus. EU hasn't really had a role. 
that's like then we're 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 banging on Germany about spending more on defense. We want you know ne the Netherlands to to spend more. But then when it comes to issues like climate change, when it comes to economic issues, trade issues, the EU acts as a block. It acts as one. And you have to deal with Brussels. So when Trump was getting in trade fights with with the European Union, he was getting it with Brussels, and and so we're you know it's an interesting dynamic. It's one that I think you know. Washington doesn't understand. If you had to ask most people in, in Washington who are experts in foreign policy, the difference between the European Council or the, the European Commission, eh, you know, they don't really know. And one is sort of the collection of European Union states that operate together. It's a one pillar of the EU, kind of like the Senate. And the other is like the executive branch of, of, of the broader EU. And this is, you know, it's important, like, you know, understanding the European Union, I think is going to be increasingly important going forward. Sorry for- Not at all. No, I want to pick up on something you just said there, because I think it's, I think it's really important in responding to my first question about why people should care about this. You outlined that there are two directions this could go. The European Union could be an incredibly significant and positive force from a U.S. standpoint in the 21st century and how it unfolds. It could also dissolve. It could also go in a, in a negative direction. And you just, a moment ago, drew a bit of an analogy to the development of our own system of government in the U.S. You pointed out that we went from a very weak federal structure and we kind of figured it out over the course of the 19th century and eventually ended up with more of our modern understanding of how the U.S. works as a political entity. Along the way, we fought a civil war. And that really takes me to where what I wanted to ask you about, which is from a non-expert standpoint, it's looked to me like some of the problems, and you alluded to this as well, that we've experienced in the US with political tribalism and domestic ferment of politics have been afflicting the EU countries as well. That they, their politics, their domestic politics within each of these countries have gotten more divided and in some ways as fractious as we've seen here in the US. And of course, we've all heard about Brexit and some of the challenges to the European project. So is that right? Is that true? Are they, are they facing some of these problems and are they as daunting as they seem here or perhaps as they seemed in the run-up to the civil war in the US? Yeah, so a great question. I mean, I, I think if you were to ask a lot of American foreign policy analysts, you know, over the last decade, they would have said, oh, you know, Europe looks unstable. It looks, you know, it's always in perpetual crisis. It could fall apart. I think now, 11 years since the 2008 financial crisis, you know, Europe, the European Union has sort of gone through all these crises, sometimes by the skin of their teeth, but they've gotten through them. And, and I think it's actually a testament to the durability and resilience of the EU that I think now, you know, every crisis, everyone's like, this could be it, this could be it. And they weren't wrong, but the EU survived. And I think that's sort of a testament to, I think the broader argument that I'm making is that, no, the EU is actually very durable, very resilient. But your point about the crises, I think is, is, is a great one. You know, the, the you know, it was the, the historian Shelby Foote that made the comment that the United States or the civil war is what, what turned the United States into an, an is. You know, United States it used to be United States are, you know, we were a plural states collective, and then we became an is, we became a, a, a union. You know, hopefully, you know, Europe won't go through that crisis. I think it had it with World War II, and hence this is sort of the European project is, is a response to that. But what is, what, you know, there was a, one of the, the founding fathers of the European Union, John Monet, said Europe will be forged in crisis. 
what happens is that, you know, it's the same sort of thing that happened in the United States where it's not necessarily logical design, right? It is when the EU gets together to solve a problem, it's politicians that represent democratic states often getting together and sort of compromising. So what you have is that, you know, the European Union creates its own currency, the Euro, uh, huge achievement. You know, it basically got rid of the Deutschmark, the French franc, it, you know, critical to actually unifying the continent politically. You know, ec economists always hated it, but like economically, the fact that you can just travel and trade throughout most of, most of Europe and use one currency, big deal. But then they didn't create a fiscal policy, right? They didn't create an ability to tax and raise money to then spend it on, our poor, on poor regions within Europe. And so what then happens is you have this sort of economic divergence where the Euro is great for Germany, who suddenly the Deutschmark, which was valued at a super high level, well, the euro, when you start, burn, you know, merge your currency with Greece or Italy, less strong economies, well, your currency depreciates, Germany can export, and boom times for Germany. And we look at, we think, oh, Germany is just great economic management. Well, they have a depreciated currency. And this is, Trump wasn't wrong when he was sort of, you know, hitting Merkel about sort of, uh, about German trade practices. But then if you're Italy or Greece, like the currency is overvalued. You have really you have really struggle with economic competitiveness. So this created a real economic crisis in Europe, and one that they I don't think they effectively dealt with. But then finally, in this past year, when faced with COVID, faced with a major economic uh, conundrum, they did this huge 750 billion euro package that will really focus on countries like Italy and Spain. So here is a crisis. They then respond. Migration is another one. You know, they, you take down borders internally, but you don't create a common border force. You don't create common rules around what European, what immigration should, should look like. And so suddenly you have this wave of migration from the Middle East and North Africa. Um, and, you know, there's sort of, once your migrants are in, they can then travel through all these different countries. There's no sense of what they should do. Well, the European Union just created a 10,000 strong border force. They armed them over the last five years. And it's not... The problem isn't solved. You know, they paid off Turkey. They've done all these other, they've cut all these deals, which, you know, aren't necessarily progressive, aren't necessarily liberal. Some cases may have, you know, in fact, violated human rights, but they've shown the EU is willing to do what it takes to kind of protect its union. And then, of course, Brexit. You have a country voting to leave the European Union for all sorts of, you know, reasons. Most of them, I think, sort of tied up with kind of bizarre cultural reasons within the UK. But the response from the, from the EU was really, I think, surprising and, and shocking. The UK thought, okay, in its negotiations with the EU, know what we gotta do? We just gotta pick off one of the 27 other countries and just get one of them to agree with us. And you know, then, the, then we've divided the EU. They can't really you know, take a hard negotiating line. They couldn't do it. The EU acted as one and there was one global power back and forth and it was the EU. And we're seeing that to this day. So what happens, what's happened with each of these crises that it is faced, the Euro, the migration crisis, Brexit, and even with COVID, where the response was initially very haphazard, the EU sort of bungled the vaccination acquisition. But on the other, at the end of the day, you know, the EU is actually going to look at this quite, come out of this, I think, quite well. And in fact, it's probably going to get more powers to deal with future crises in the future. But the EU is going to, comes out of these crises stronger. And there's recent polling that shows that has been done by the European Council of Foreign Relations which, you know, it's sort of a glass half full, glass half empty. On the one hand, European citizens are quite disappointed in Brussels. You know, they don't think everything's working that well. You know, fair enough. But then like, they're also want 
all these reforms for the EU to actually become stronger. And this is what's happened is that EU citizens aren't, aren't like, oh, we should get rid of Europe. We should get rid of the European Union because they were born as EU citizens. No, it's like, we don't get rid of America when we, we have an issue or we shouldn't. And, and here, I think there's a big movement for reform and for improvement. And the last thing I'd sort of say is that the European project has tend, tended to move very quickly in certain spurts and then have these periods of stagnation. I think we were just in kind of a period of stagnation. Like, you know, German Chancellor Angela Merkel is sort of revered in Washington because she's a great state stateswoman and, and, and because of her decency, but has not been, you know, really a progressive when it comes to really moving the European project forward. And so she's about to leave the scene. Macron is very, uh, the president of France is very interested in, in sort of pushing the EU forward. So we could be in this coming into a period where there's actually a lot of action, a lot of movement toward making the European Union a stronger body, a stronger entity that then I think will mean a lot for the world. You recently wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post in which you said, since the end of the Cold War, the United States has been dismissive of the European Union, preferring to bypass Brussels and work directly with EU member states or play them off against one another. And post-Brexit, the road to the EU bloc no longer runs through London. You go on to argue that now we should not do that playoff process, that one-on-one -on -one bilateral, let's talk to Italy, let's talk to France, let's talk to Germany. We should really bolster the European project. So what is your great idea? What is that all about? So, you know, essentially it's to, to really reorient U.S. foreign policy to make the EU, I think, effectively our new, a new special relationship, a new special partner that we really focus on. And, and you know, what, what effectively happened is that, you know, during the 1990s was this, you know, bizarre decade of where the Cold War just suddenly ended. America is unrivaled. And yet Europe looks on the precipice. You know, we always we sort of forget that we, America intervened in two wars in Bosnia and Kosovo, and that, you know, we had the sense of Europe always being on the brink of collapse. And what happened is as the EU was formed in 1993 and was making all this progress in the 90s, the Clinton administration was having to defend NATO, was having to, to defend maintaining the existence of NATO, which was, you know, fundamentally created to deal with the Soviets. And so now that Russia wasn't an enemy, what was the, the purpose of this? And so the Clinton administration kind of took a, a disdainful eye toward the European Union. We were sort of didn't quite know, trust it. We didn't really want it to get into defense or foreign policy. And then what happened is 9-11 happened. So after 9-11, you know, Washington's entire attention just completely shifted away from Europe. During the 90s, we were totally focused on Europe. And then after 9-11, it was about we wanted Europe to be to what, you know, deliver the goods militarily, to support us in our war. Before, we actually just kind of wanted Europe to follow our lead. We didn't actually care if Europe was strong. That was sort of part of what the Clinton, you know, administration's view was we wanted Europe to get behind. And we we're kind of nervous if the EU formed, we have no rival, would the EU challenge the United States for, for power? Now, I think we're in a new geopolitical moment where China has clearly emerged as, as, as a major global actor as one that could really challenge the United States and, and not just challenge the United States, but challenge the concept of a rules-based international order where you know, China exporting its sort of autocratic, techno-autocratic model. And, and, and that's something where the United States and China are in this competition. Well, wouldn't it be great if the United States had a really strong ally that was about the same size as us 
that was you know strong militarily, had a really large economy, that had our same values. Well, we have that, and <laughs> it's it's in Europe. And my point is that we really need to not neglect Europe in this competition with China, in this new competition, not just with China, but but between political systems, between authoritarian systems, between with Russia and with authoritarian systems and, and democracies, and there's no better partner. And so that's part of what Biden is, is doing. And, and, you know, there's sort of general agreement about this, but we've always neglected the EU. On the Republican side of the House in Washington have viewed the EU through a very ideological lens as kind of multilateralism run amok, as if this is sort of like the UN on steroids, and complicates sort of national sovereignty. And we don't like that as a model. I just think that's the wrong way to view it. I think the way to view it is that the EU is actually a state in formation and is, is forming itself. And that is a, you know, an, a, an outcome of US foreign policy. In some ways, the EU is probably America's greatest foreign policy accomplishment, the unification of Europe. And what we need to do and what the, what the United States has done over the last two decades, oftentimes is just either not been present in EU conversations or has oftentimes been a force for disunity, you know, stopping EU efforts on defense or foreign policy, supporting kind of pull, you know, using the UK or Poland to kind of block certain initiatives at the EU. Just completely, you know, if, if an issue such as climate or something or, or cyber becomes an issue, we go to NATO when NATO is really a military alliance, and that's really where the EU should, should has much more input and authority. And so we've completely kind of neglected it. And, and the, the, yet we have this stereotype that Europe is stagnant and not doing anything and is weak. And part of the weakness is because we don't push Europe in a direction. And so we have this like, you know, I, my, my argument, one of the things I, I forth is that no other region in the world do we have more influence. We have more influence in Europe than any other region. And we don't really use that influence to really push for anything. You know, we talk about a strategy for Asia or a strategy for the Middle East. No one ever really lays out a strategy for Europe. It's like, well, we just talk to them and we just need to know what order to call the right world, right European leaders so they don't get mad at us. It's like, no, there's actually a lot more to that. And my argument is that we need to be, I'll just stop here because I'm going on, but there's a great Konrad Adenauer where he was the first West German chancellor. So after, the, after World War II, and he was in Dean Atchison's office, who was the secretary of state. And he said, you know, Americans are the best Europeans. His argument was, his point being that like, well, German, the Germans and the French, they always argue, but then the Americans came in and said, you must agree or, you know, pushing in a certain direction. And that's not what we're doing, what we've stopped doing. Now, we don't have the same leverage as we had when, you know, after World War II, but we have a lot of leverage. We have a lot of influence, and we should be using that to really push European integration and European project forward. In your Washington Post op-ed, you lay out some specific benefits that we could get from following this course that you outlined of pushing the, EU, the EU for their own benefit toward greater integration and greater strength as a long-term strategic partner for our U.S. foreign policy aims. So let's just quickly run through. You, you have four, and I'm going to add a bonus fifth one onto it. So let's just quickly run through those four benefits. The first that you outline is around climate. You argue that working together, the U.S. and the EU can accomplish a good deal more than not working together. What is that? What's that all about? Yeah, well, it's, it's merely because our economies are so large. It represents 
I think around 30% of the global economy is just the US and EU, and, and our economies are roughly the same size. One of the things that the European Union is right now considering, because they've you know done a, a green deal on climate, is that they're thinking about coming out with something in typical sort of Eurocrat speak, which is, you know, a, a, it's a, called a carbon border adjustment mechanism, which sounds That really just rolls boring. right off the tongue. Yeah, it rolls right off the tongue. But what it is, is actually could be really important in international relations, which is uh, effectively a tariff or a tax on dirty products. So if you're, you know, producing coal or, or producing steel made by through, you know, powered by coal, the coal industry, well, that's dirty and they're going to level a big, big tariff on it. And that has real power because of the size of the European market. Con countries will want to trade with Europe. And what Europe doesn't want is to go through this big climate transition and then have their products all be undercut by dirty products from abroad. So it makes perfect sense, but it'd be even more powerful if the United States and Europe join forces in doing that. So if we made progress on climate, then our two economies together by saying like, we're going to raise our standards. And so if you want access to our market, then you have to like, you know, be taking progress to not be a dirty country or not be a dirty company would have a real impact. So that's number one. Number two is just the size of our economies. I mean, the EU is the largest donor of development assistance, much more than we are. And so if we link our development assistance together, and, and in, a, in a way that can leverage our capabilities, provide incentives for countries to take on climate initiatives, that, that's really useful. The third thing is that we can just set standards. And if we set standards together, then countries you know, are gonna have to follow because they need market access. So, that is, so it's a critical area. Well, actually that last point in service of arguing for the climate impact that the two regions could have together, also leads to, I think, the second argument that you made, which is that there would actually domestic U.S. benefit for the U.S. middle class from greater coordination with the European Union. Why is that? So one of the things we've sort of come to realize over the last 20, 30 years, we're, we're, I would describe it a bit as we're in sort of a paradigm shift in how we sort of view international economic policy. You know, we've viewed for a long time the whole entire strategy was based on open markets. And if we open up and do free trade, then countries are going to democratize and that will be all to our benefit and we'll gain economic efficiency. That is no longer, you know, that doctrine is, has, has lost, you know, Republicans don't, don't really believe it and, and Democrats don't believe it anymore. So we're in a kind of a new era and we saw this with, with our supply chain dependency on China when it came to things like PPE. And so I think there's increasingly we don't, we, the, the pursuit of economic efficiency of, of global supply chains and other things like that and, and outsourcing, we want to produce more here in the United States, but we also need market. And the European Union is a very big market. And they also have really high standards, higher regulatory standards on those things than we do, or at least some, in some ways are different. So I think this is where the US and EU working together, increasing the economic intensity of our co cooperation could be really useful as we try to build new supply chains. Like we don't need to build new supply chains that are just in the United States. It could also include Europe because they're a reliable democratic partner. And, and I think that will be hugely beneficial to the American middle class, the European middle class, as we are looking at trying to have higher standards, yet, yet still maintain markets. And, and so in the last point is the other thing I think we realized is that by opening ourselves up to autocratic countries to do trade, to economic investment, autocrats is we thought that would democratize them, but it also corrupted us to some degree. So we became dependent on, you know, we see that with, with Apple or big tech companies not are, are following China's lead or not saying anything negative about China. 
We see that in, in the amount of money flowing in, in, in Russian oligarch money flowing into European capitals. So I think we need to sort of intensify the economic cooperation amongst democracies. And if the US and EU sort of lead the, that I think is, is sort of lays a foundation for, for the 21st century. Yeah, it's a really interesting point between the economic, the, the, the connection between the economic and sort of the democratization and human rights agenda. That actually was your fourth point. Let's skip right to that one. I mean, you saw it just right before the start of the pandemic, it kind of got erased by the fact that, you know, we all went through through COVID together, but the, the, the general manager of the Houston Rockets sent a tweet about Chinese policy in the Xinjiang region and the way that they were effectively committing a genocide against the Uyghur population there. And all of a sudden, oh no, he was focused on Hong Kong. Sorry, I'm trying to keep my Chinese human rights abuses straight. <laughs> yes. And all of a sudden there was a, there was a global economic blow up over that. But you you make that your your fourth point in the Washington Post op-ed. You say that, hey, you know, it's not just this kind of impact on the domestic middle class in the U.S. Also, greater cooperation with Europe could have an effect on our response to these autocratic, undemocratic regimes. Yeah. Well, again, this is partly due to market size. And how do we respond to regimes that are committing human rights? Well, the, the easiest tool is through economic policies, is through sanctions. And when it came to sanctioning the Iranians for their nuclear program, who did we do that with? We did it with the European Union because the European Union acts as one when it comes to uh, economic policy. When we sanctioned Russia after 2014, after it invaded Ukraine, we did it through the European Union. And early this year, we did sanctions against China for, for the human rights abuses against the Uyghurs. And the response from the Chinese against, you know, they, China sanctioned a bunch of EU think tanks, some EU members of parliament. And the response from Europe was this sort of shock. And what that shows you is that if we want Europe to sort of be more hawkish on China, human rights is a great way to do that because the European, Europeans want to uphold their values and they have a market that can, that, that, that is really forceful. So, so when we work together, uh, when we think about you know, a values-based foreign policy, as President Biden has laid out, wanting to really prioritize human rights and democracy, well, the entity to work with there, you know, yes, we have to work with Germany and France, but the, it's the EU sanctions. It's when the EU acts as one, when Europe acts as one, is immensely powerful. And last point, on, in Belarus, when they effectively kidnapped a, a Belarusian dissident who was flying on an EU internal EU flight that just happened to fly over Belarus and they forced the plane to land and took the, this individual off the plane, the EU responded actually very forcefully, suddenly cutting off flights because they have this large market. And so that is what we're be increasingly seeing is the EU beginning to act as one. The one drawback, a potential drawback, I should just flag this, is that the Chinese and Russians see this. And so what they're doing is increasing their diplomatic efforts, their economic efforts, using Belt and Road, using other investments to build up ties with, with Hungary, for instance, or Poland, or, you know, or the Czech Republic. These sort of Trojan horses that, that within the EU that could, be, that could serve to sort of veto statements. And we're seeing that where the EU is having an increasingly hard time doing statements against China or Russia because the Hungarians are objecting. And so we have 26 members, but hung, Hungarians sort of object. Well, I think that's just going to prompt the EU to say, well, you know what, maybe we're not going to rely on consensus among member states. We're going to start, you know, majority voting. And, and you know, that's an example of when the EU gets stuck, it figures out, starts, it reforms. So, yeah, so human rights is, I think, a, a real, an area where actually 
they are the partner we need to be, be working closely with. I'm going to just briefly mention the other area that jumps out from your op-ed, which is, hey, you know, the U.S. and the EU can work together to vaccinate the world against COVID and other maladies. I, I don't want to land on that one too long because I think it's kind of self-evident. I think it's obvious when you get the rich countries together who have a lot of the vaccines, that is a role that they can play. I want to focus on something that's not in your op-ed for a second. You wrote a separate report that is pretty compelling, and I urge people to check it out if you're interested on the website of the Center for American Progress, where you argue that another thing that we need to be doing here is not focusing so much on building up NATO militarily, but building up the military capability of the European Union. Why? Why go down that road? What are the benefits for the US and I, I guess for global security of building up the military capacity of the European Union? So great. Well, thank, thanks for flagging the report. I mean, what 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 I argue is that it's not, you know, we have long viewed, I think wrongly in the United States, that NATO and EU are in some sort of competition, that you know, they're two multilateral organizations and, and we like NATO more because we're in NATO, but we the United States, but we're not in, in, in the European Union. And I think this is just like a totally wrong way of looking at it. And the reason why is that what is NATO's objective? It's ultimately to coordinate the US and European defense. And my point is that we have spent the last 20 years, I mean, even longer actually, but really in the last 20 years, hammering the Europeans to spend more on defense. We have had a conservative German government for the last 15 years, a conservative German government that just, you know, like the German military is in a really decrepit state where a lot of their helicopter fleet can't fly, their fighter jets, they don't have enough spare parts for their fighter jets, so, so pilots can't train. I mean, this is Germany. This is a country that is wealthy enough, that is competent, that, we, that if it really, if it cared about this, would take it seriously, but it doesn't care enough about it. And part of what's happened is NATO has been a success. That if you live in Spain, you're not, you don't have any real threat. Yet we insist that defense spending be done at a national level. It's like if you insisted Nebraska spend, you know, two percent of its state budget to defend Texas, and be like, well, I don't, you know, we like we like to beat them at football. Like I don't really care about spending money on fighter jets when we want to spend money on schools. And so it's, I just think the current setup doesn't work. And lo and behold, you know, we have this thing called the EU which has emerged as a political union. And when you look at polling within the EU consistently over the last 20 years, European citizens favor by like margins of above 70% creating an EU defense, the EU doing more in defense. Now they don't really know what that means because no one's really articulated it. But what, so what I am suggesting is that the United States should really encourage the EU members to collectively merge their resources, their money and begin to spend. And that could, you know, it's up to Europeans to sort of the EU to sort of figure it out. But one thing you could do is that there's a lot of really expensive, like high-end enabling equipment, things we don't think about. But like when the French deployed forces to the Sahel in Africa, they had to call us up on the phone in like 2014 and say, hey, we, we, need, we need air tankers. We need uh, you to provide gas for our planes to, air, to do air refueling because they don't have them. Because air tankers are very expensive. But those are the sort of things that like maybe the EU could invest and get those enabling capabilities, transport aircraft. And, it, you know, the, the last point is just in the 90s, we sort of said, would anyone die for the European Union? And the answer was like, no, you know, you would die for your, your, your country. Now, I think the answer might be yes. 
And so I think that this is, it's the EU has shown it wants to get involved in defense. This is something we should support. And with a new German government coming, likely involving the Greens that have, have thrown this out in, 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 within Germany, this is something the US should really push for. And this is something the French support. And so I think this is sort of the next frontier for European integration is foreign policy integration, as well as pushing for defense. In, in our own in the US, it has been through military action, through defense, where the United States has really come together more as a union, become more of a global player. And so I think that's what we should encourage Europe to do. Well, what I would do to sort of take it full circle is, you know, if I were listening to this and I weren't just hosting it, I would be constantly asking, well, why does this benefit the US? And I think you've laid out a really convincing case that this is a natural ally that we've had for more than half a century collectively. And the, the ability to deepen that relationship and to help them with their process of integrating and becoming stronger and an even more powerful ally as we seek to advance not only our international interests, but our domestic interests, it seems like a worthwhile endeavor to at least consider. So Max Bergman of the Center for American Progress, thank you very much for sharing your great idea with us.